and I think we're, we're, we're experiencing a little bit of a, you know, a unique period in time where we're going to generate a wide breadth of new technologies, new practices. There's just this new spur of energy, right, that we're going to hopefully capitalize on. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Our Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We're sciencing the global food challenge. Adiseo USA, producers of Smartamime M and MilkPay.com. Exelite, a novel product for management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. SmaxTech, get insights from inside your cows with SmaxTech for higher herd health and profitability. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. On this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show, the tables are turned because one of your regular hosts, Dr. Joe McFadden, is the guest today. And I'm Peggy Coffin from the Up Level Dairy Podcast, here to turn those tables and ask the questions to Dr. Joe McFadden from Cornell University and tell a little bit of his story about who he is, how he got to where he's at, and what drives him in the research that he's doing. And so, Joe, welcome to your show, the Dairy Podcast show. Yeah, thanks, Peggy. This is a little bit weird, but let's do it. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so Joe, you have been on this journey for many, many years through education and research, and it has taken you from Cornell University as an undergrad to University of Illinois for your master's to your doctorate at Virginia Tech and a postdoc at John, Hop- John Hopkins University. But what got you on this path in the first place? Why have you so fervently pursued learning? research and teaching on these topics related to milk production, methane reduction, even human health. Well, you know, I was just telling the story the other day and, and people don't, um, probably a lot of my advisees don't necessarily realize this, but I often ask my advisees, you know, like, why are you, you know, coming to Cornell? Like, what's, what's, what's the mission? What's the drive? And, and many of my advisees are still figuring things out, which is completely acceptable and, and, you know, I tried to help them, you know, figure out their career plans, right? But for me, it actually all started in the fifth grade. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, this is, this way is back. It's good. Tell, take us back to fifth grade, Joe. Way back, okay? So actually in the fourth and fifth grade, I used to shadow uh, small animal vests because I knew I was interested in animals. And then uh, I didn't really find it truly in, enjoyable. It just wasn't for me. And so my parents would take me to uh, travel along with a large animal vet in about the fifth and sixth grade. And and then there was this time where we had this college fair and the student, this, this teacher came up to us and said, hey, we want to buy a hat, you know, represents a college, get us to think about where we might want to go to college. And, and I said, well, what, what college studies animal science? And she said Cornell. So ever since the fifth grade, I think it was, fifth or sixth grade, I had that sort of figured out. And um, I obviously wanted to be a veterinarian. And initially, I, I didn't know anything about research or, you know, what, what I do now was a sort of entirely new area of of discipline um, that I was introduced to when I came to Cornell, but uh, that's sort of how it all started. 
Mataseo, a global leader in nutritional solutions and the provider of Smartamine-N, the best-in-class rumen-protected methionine product for dairy producers who want to optimize milk production, capture more value from their components, and maintain their lifetime performance of their herds. For more product information and to calculate your return on investment when you balance your feed with amino acids, go to MilkPay.com. Yeah. Okay. So we go back to the fifth grade. You've been wearing a Cornell hat ever since then. And now that's the institution that you're working for. How cool is that? Yeah, it's a little bit weird. It's even weirder because I'm in the same office as my prior advisor. My my, my advisor was Dr. Dale Bauman. And that's where I started. And when they opened up the door, the, the same desk was still in here. I changed the desk out, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, it's a little bit, a little bit unique in that way. But, you know, I think I want to sort of mention, you know, like why the cow and what sort of, you know, why did I make that my life's mission to, to study the cow? You know, it's really unique animal. You know, I just really became fascinated, not coming from a farm, mind you. I, I was just no farm background at all, but had the unique experience at that early of an age to work and travel with a large animal that that just was a complete wonder to me. And I just really wanted to know how the cow worked. I, I just absolutely wanted to know everything I could know about the cow. I would come back and tell stories to all my friends and they're like, oh, wow, that was really neat, right? And so I just, just kept kept the drive and motivation alive to, to really study as much as I possibly could and um, really grateful for the ride I've had so far. Yeah. And so you've been knee deep, elbow deep, I'm assuming at times too, in studying the cow. Uh, but, you know, really your research is so much bigger than that. The things that you're looking at now are far beyond that cow. They're about the impacts that that individual cow and cows collectively around the world are having on our future. Uh-huh. And also some of your research has pertained back to human health and, and the interactions there as well. So just give us a snapshot. What are some of the things that you're working on now? Yeah. So, so now it's, it, you know, it's really unique how, you know, my, my career, I feel, I feel like how it has evolved over time. Like when I first started out, I felt very much focused on a very specific area of science and didn't put much thought into how it related to everything else around it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think as you get older, you start to have more experience and you start to see the interactions a little bit more clearer. And so now we're really at a unique time in terms of the program because we're, we're shifting more towards enteric methane mitigation but and I talk to people as, hey, you're working on methane now, and you know the reality is methane is just a one component to you know cow biology, right? And I what I teach my tell my students all the time is that you know the cow is a system and everything sort of relates to each other, right? And we want to really define those interactions and and study them to as great a depth as possible, and um, you know that. We're, we're focused on methane, but we're not ignoring animal health. We're not ignoring nutrient digestibility and bioavailability or, you know, energy metabolism and nutrient partitioning. These are all common themes that remain in the lab. We're just deciding to add methane to the component, right? And, and I think that's such a critical component now because one of the things I've been advocating for in the field is that, you know, we have to have a sort of a holistic approach to, to study enteric methane mitigation because we don't want to create a, a, a solution that sort of solves one problem by creating another problem, right? And so, um, any of our experimental approaches really need to be comprehensive and holistic. And, um, and so, that's that component. But there's also this human component. And you know, what I see happening now is we're starting to expand our efforts in South Asia, in particular India. Um, you know, and India has 300 million cows and buffaloes, and um, they're they're uh, 
efficiency to produce milk is far less than the cows in the United States. And there's a lot of opportunity there to translate knowledge that we've already learned and, but, and also learn from them at the same time to figure out how we could, you know, um, improve our own production systems. And so, and it's just, it's just so much. I love learning. I love the, I love the ride. I love following the science and it's, it's led me to India right now, at least part of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And you just touched a little bit on you know, the human impacts. Um, yep. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about your path that took you where you're at is the time that you spent at John Hopkins working on the human health side. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on why you chose to go into a department that specialized? It was neuroscience, correct? Yep. Exactly right. Well, how did you end up there? Well, you can blame my wife, I guess. <laughs> no, I'll do it. Yeah, blame her. She takes all the credit. Uh, that said, what happened was I was finishing my degree at Virginia Tech, and she was working on her architecture degree in DC. And so we decided. I decided to say, what can I do a little bit different that I would think uh, provide me with, um, you know some complementary strengths in terms of my training and the Johns Hopkins medicine, they were studying fat metabolism in the brain. And at the time that, that was my area of interest, the fat metabolism in the mammary gland. It's like, well, I had some strengths that I think I could provide them. And at the same time, I could learn a little bit more about fat metabolism in a different tissue and a different, different experimental model. And uh, at the time, metabolomics and lipidomics, which is a sort of a system based approach using mass spectrometry to, comprehensively profile metabolites it was relatively new technology and really wasn't applied yet in in domestic animals especially the dairy cow and so it it was a good move in my when i look back at my career progression i think that was the one moment where it was really pivotal because i was able to understand sort of that human health component in terms mm-hmm. of you know there's a lot of conversation at the time about saturated fats and obesity and you know inflammation diabetes that kind of conversation was at it was is at its peak and still at its peak in a way, and, but I was able to understand the sort of the their reasoning, their their justification for you know looking at those relationships, and then be able to take back that technology to to the animal science field. And, and now with our work here in the United States and abroad, you know it gives me a lot of um, focus because dairy foods themselves are are key foods for nutrition and health, and in communities that are. You know, really rely on dairy foods for again health and nutrition. Um, it's just ever so important to look at that relationship because um, you know people's lives are at stake. Yeah, yeah. And so it sounds like a couple uh, to summarize a couple of key takeaways that you had from that experience. One is the bigger picture of the nutritional impacts on the human side of dairy, but then that other piece is how you could look at what's going on in the human body and relate that back to what's going on in the cow's body. And so how did, what, what blew your mind about brain science that you were able to look at a cow differently? Oh, I'm so that, can we, now I'm going to start talking about ceramide, the sphingolipid ceramide. And, and people that know me well will probably start to laugh a little bit because um, at the time, and it still is to this day, ceramide is a type of sphingolipid that is supposed to be a key cause of type 2 diabetes. And we were looking at ceramide levels in the brain and, and its, its relationship to food intake. But at the time, nobody really knew anything about ceramide in the cow. It was, it, was, it was barely even talked about. And so there was this idea to say, okay, well, there's a lot of similarities between a human with lipotoxicity and insulin resistance and a cow that has experienced a decrease in insulin response and having higher circulating fatty acids you know, during early lactation. And the question was, you know, does ceramide sort of play a role in that? And 
that's that was the translation and you know we've been doing this now for 10 years we're still we still have ceremony related studies with our nsf funding that are ongoing and um it's it's pretty crazy i, I love to see scenarios there though where we take what we learn from the cal you know and translate that back to the human world i would love to see more of that flow of information yeah. Well, and, and that pertains to some of the conversations that you've had on the dairy podcast, even around lactose intolerance. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to um, the science of sort of dairy foods and their impacts on human health and nutrition, right? So hopefully with a couple of these podcasts, we, we've hopefully clarified some of that misinformation and uh, we'll continue to do so. Absolutely. And you know what? It's just as good for those of us that work in the dairy industry to know and have a better understanding of the ability for humans to be able to tolerate um, the products that we produce. And so great work that you're doing on that end. And I want to take a moment to swing back around to the work that you're doing on the on the methane side uh, and looking at those greater impacts of what's going on at the farm level and how that impacts the cow, but also how it impacts the producer. And so on, on my podcast, Up Level Dairy, I'm speaking to dairy farmers and also trusted advisors about business management and leadership. So we don't talk science. You guys do that. That really well. So I let you guys uh, take that, take that foothold with the dairy podcast show. But, uh, but for a moment, speak to the dairy farmer. What's the message that the producer should know about the bigger picture of how production and how they're feeding the cow, how they're treating the cow has an impact on the world around us and the world in the world beyond? Oh, it, it, I mean, I don't think I'm going to say anything that most producers don't already realize that, you know, that their actions have a meaningful impact on things like natural resource utilization and methane emissions. They know this, right? And what I think is what we're not really doing well is sharing that message with the non-farmers of the world, right? And so I think at least the United States and countries that are really using the, the sort of the best production practices and technologies to be efficient and good stewards of the land and to be um, good, um, maintain optimum animal health and well-being, which I argue in many ways, you know, this is what we're leaders are doing in, in animal agriculture. So I want to sort of flip that question and sort of say we got to be telling the consumer more of those mm. you know, practices and why they're important and, and how you know American farmers and, and other farmers that use those practices are are leaders in, in a way in terms of protecting our environment, protecting our planet, right? And so and I think there's, you know, there's room for improvement. And so one of the things I always say um, to to farmers that are perhaps skeptical of climate change, and there are farmers like that, okay, that are skeptical. It's right to be skeptical. I am often skeptical in many of the things that I even do myself. <laughs> um, so I think it's important though to realize that, you know, we're at a very unique time where there's a lot of attention on animal agriculture. There's a lot of investment in animal agriculture. And I think we're, we're, we're experiencing a little bit of a, you know, a unique period in time where we're going to generate a wide breadth of new technologies, new practices. There's just this new spur of energy, right, that we're going to hopefully capitalize on. And it's going to mean a better, you know, a better way to farm. It's going to be a more profitable way to farm, right? We're going to have even healthier animals, et cetera. Um, and at the same time, you know, weather itself changes over time, right? We, we're going through a rather, rather hot summer here um, in New York. Um, there's areas of the country that are experiencing drought. And so 
these technologies and approaches that we develop are just going to help farmers better adapt to acute changes, right, uh, in their local environments. And so, uh, in the end, um, this is going to be really helpful to them. Yeah. So, so that's the message to producers that you want them to hear. Uh, but you just mentioned also, Joe, that the message to the consumer is really the critical message. And, uh, and you know, one of the unique things about, about you is, uh, I mean, you live and breathe these messages to the point that you just filmed a documentary on climate change, like opened up your life to tell this story. Give, give us a yeah. little snapshot. What's this all about? That was a weird conversation I had with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How did you, so what, did you start this conversation? What happened was, I, I don't want to provide too many details because the things are going to be released sooner. Okay, okay. I'll say that um, there is a, um, a documentary um, a film producer named Michael Dwyer. I can say that. And he's done no, numerous documentaries. He currently has a show on about the Bee Gees, I believe, on HBO. And um, he's, he's filmed a, a lot of well-known folks. And I was like, well, Joe McFadden and methane, really? Um, <laughs> Fits right with the Bee Gees. Yeah. It's a little weird. Um, but he, he's creating a concept. He sees how climate change is an issue. And he wants to know, like, what, what, what is the science that, that's currently the focus? Where is it going? What's the potential impact? But he also had a question about the scientists themselves. Like what makes them unique? And he probably heard that McFadden is a little bit unique. <laughs> so, so this is a good topic. Uh, so in the end, we, he asked, like, could, could, we, could we go around and film you like for three days, you and your family, and what you do and every aspect of it? And um, initially, I was like, sure, whatever. Then I had a little bit of hesitation. And I talked to my wife and even, even had even more hesitation. But in the end, we, we went ahead and did it. And um, it was a very unique experience, to be honest with you. I, I, in the end, I'm very pleased, I think, with what the product will be. And uh, hopefully it showcases animal agriculture in its best possible light. And that was one of my main missions for doing it. And I've been told that it'll end up at a film festival um, in L.A., hopefully, at the end of the year. That's the goal. But he said, be aware, these things take time. And, and in the end, it will get us shopped around at various streaming outlets, potentially. So we'll see where it ends up. But it was fun. Yeah, so so you've completed the filming, uh, but uh, but back up. So they found you. Yeah, they yeah. found you and just reached out and said, "Hey, we hear you are the most pat one of the most passionate people in the entire world on this subject. We want to follow you around." I know they screened a bunch of scientists. So there's others. One other scientist that's not an animal scientist that was part. Of, it's going to be part of the documentary or our follow up documentary, um, and so. Uh, yeah, I know they interviewed quite a few people and um, they interviewed a few folks here at Cornell and they settled on me for some reason. It must have been something I said in that interview that was a bit contentious. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we'll see. I will say that I, I opened up quite a bit, to be honest with you, especially about my personal life. And uh, people that, that know me probably really don't know me. And um, this is a chance for them to see a little bit more than they might expect. And, uh, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, so as you said, the producers told you these things take time. You may not know the exact date when it will be released, uh, but any indication of where people can follow and find that documentary when it, when it is available? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, we're going to post it on our social media accounts and whatnot, but um, it, it'll, it'll make its way out. We're a soft, small community here, right, in the in the analog industry, so I'm sure people will find out eventually. But um, as soon as I have news, I'm going to share that on social media, and we'll go from there. Awesome. Well, hey, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for being vulnerable, transparent, and putting yourself out there to to speak on behalf of Animal Egg. I just hope you... they don't show a blooper reel, okay? If they show a blooper reel, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of other people out there that would love to tell this story in a way that you and to the rest of us in this industry would not be proud of. So thank you for rising up to the challenge, taking it on and making it your own. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And uh, and so so you've got a lot going on. You've got you know this documentary that came up. You've got the work that you're doing internationally. You've got the things that you're doing in your lab. What are you most excited about right now? Uh, what what project are you working on right now that gets you most excited? Gets you up in the morning, ready to rock and roll for the day? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's our work here at Cornell, right? So I'll just sort of. You know, it's we're we're gradually sharing what we're building here, but we're building something really special, um, and it really just came out of perfect timing and the, the the opportunity that I saw to really, you know, bring people together, right? And we at Cornell, we have such unique sort of environment where you've got people from all sort of areas of dairy production that are can, can converge together to really solve. Uh, this enteric methane issue, right? And so uh, it really, it all started with the acquisition of uh, respiration chamber systems um, that happened about three years ago. We acquired some of the funding and it was, it was surpassed $2 million to build this facility uh, to, to allow for total gas exchange quantification in a controlled environment from, from having four chambers or four animals at once. And that was sort of like the seed, right? It was a seed that sort of set the stage for the acquisition of uh, currently, we're going to have five green feed units. Uh, we're thinking about renovating our our research barn and facility to, for the for clinical trials that could be required for um, by the FDA for various feed additives. Where we just created a um, we submitted an application to our college for faculty positions. I believe there was 26 or 29 total applications, and five were approved, including that the one that uh, we champion here in our, our department to hire a rumen microbiologist, a dairy economist, as well as somebody focused on sustainable food systems in developing countries. Um, so there's a lot of momentum. There's two additional other hires we're looking at. So the, the department's growing, the infrastructure's growing, um, and we're, we're working better together than ever before. So that's why I come to work. Ah, wow. And so, wow, when you when you would talk about that, I can hear your passion coming through. And uh, and when you look ahead at these new hires that you're bringing in to the program and to the group there, you're positioning Cornell to be really the, you know, the, the top tier leader in this work. What's your vision? What's your vision 10, 20 years from now for how people will look at the work you're doing and the impact? That we generated, regenerated solutions that are effective and safe. Right. It's, it's not really that complex. OK, what, what I fear is, is that we get bogged down sometimes by thinking too linear that, oh, we have we'll give you an example that there's a certain percent efficacy for feed additive X. Right. But we ignore the periphery. And so I want to I want to be uh, I want our work to be seen, you know, 10, 20 years down the line that, hey, they they didn't ignore the periphery, that they they're ensuring that 
solutions that the, the technology is safe for the cow and safe for the human. And, and but at the same time, communicate that work to the public in a, in a transparent manner, right? And so, and, and un, you know, unbiased absolutely as well. Um, we have to constantly um, showcase uh, limitations and where we can improve. And then by doing so, I believe we can firmly garner the trust of the consumer um, and just ensure that our solutions are adoptable. So, I, you know, it's a unique time. I would argue that Cornell has always been um, one of the leaders in terms of enhanced production efficiency. Um, I would argue that when it came to looking at solutions at enteric methane mitigation, you know, we were, we were a bit behind. And um, I believe we caught up, and I believe we're on a fast track to to be one of the top leaders in the field. And you are leading that charge. I'm trying. I'll say that. Um, it's not always perfect, but <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> oh, well, exciting times in your department, exciting times for our industry at large, and hopefully exciting times to come as we continue to learn more and see what comes out from the work that you're doing. And, uh, and so, Joe, we talked about the work that you're doing, but... I'm going to switch things up a little bit and ask you a little bit more about you. And okay. so so my listeners on the Up Level Dairy Podcast, they know that I always like to ask people five questions. I call them the Up Level Five. And, uh, and I'm going to toss them out to you today. Okay. So question number one for you, Joe, what does success look like to you? How do you define success and what you do? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you ask that question because I recently turned 40, I'm 41. And when I hit 40, that was a real moment in my life where I really yeah. thought about that question more than I ever thought about it before. I mean, when I was younger, it was like, it was about tangible things. It was about, you know, achieving X, Y, and Z in the next couple of years, right? But as you get older, things change, um, much so. And to me, I wanted to make sure that I was I was living a happy life, okay. That I had um, uh, a family that I could, you know, that I, I grew tighter with, you know, over time. Even though I became more busier in my job, I really wanted to make sure that the, the success of my career enabled me to be close with my family. So and I think we, we've done that. We've we actually recently uh, acquired some some farmland, and we started some projects I never thought I'd be doing, but. Um, that I truly enjoy. And I think in terms of my science, yeah, it's always exciting to see a successful outcome in terms of the study. But over time, again, as I get, get older and I enter these, these new part of my academic program, I, I really want to make sure that the solutions we generate are, are, are meaningful, that they're, they actually are used, right? I, to me, the true joy is to see something that we've done actually be implemented in the field. And that has dramatically changed because my earlier work, you know, the work I was doing at Johns Hopkins, you know, it, it, it may never actually translate into something of, of practicality, right? And so it, coming to Cornell was really forced, and not necessarily forced is not the right word, but um, in an environment where they really, you know, embody that philosophy that, you know, we, the things that we do are, are really should have a meaningful impact. And so I'm really excited for the next 10 years because we're going to have, hopefully have that impact. Yeah. And so success to you then is the impact, real impact from the work you're doing, but at the end of the day to have that impact at home with your family too. Yeah. And it sounds like you should be adding the word farmer to your resume as well now. Yeah. 
Well, some people don't know this. Uh, it's a it's a new. Th- uh, we just finished our first season, but I am a maple farmer. Um, oh, a sugar! You're a sugar farmer, huh? Yeah, yeah. I'm very, I'm very much a, uh, a small scale. We've got a, a thousand taps this year. We, uh, we created a come to call you like a maple works. We might expand that to two thousand taps, but um, yeah, I do that every spring. Oh, very exciting! So, are you a farmer? Or is this just like a crazy science project? Oh, it's so fun. I mean, we're trying to, we're doing it to have a profitable, um, you know, maple operation. So. Uh, and we're trying to keep it completely separate, but yeah, I can't ignore the science. I Cornell has a strong maple program that helped me out along the way, and I have a couple ideas ourselves, even to merge it with the dairy world. Actually, oh, oh, yeah, the maple filtrate has a lot of minerals in it, so we wonder if it could be a, a mineral supplement. Oh boy, you're just getting started, aren't you? I am. <laughs> Oh, so more to come from the maple business and Joe the farmer. And uh, and next question for you is in three words, how do you want to show up each day? It's saying show up to work. Yeah, I mean, I want to show up, you know, in focus. Right? It might sound as though I like focus, but in a way, I really want people to understand that. You know, I'm trying to think about this, you know, that look at the complete system, but uh, we definitely have um, objectives every day of the week that we think about. And so come focus and come prepare. I think I'm positive. I want to be a positive person. I think I want to surround myself with positive people. I think there's a lot of skepticism in the world and there's a lot of, uh, well, this isn't going to work because, you know, it's in this, this system or this, this region of the world. And we're going to have to, Again, third word, compromise a bit um, in order to get a little further down the road. And so things might not work out perfectly in the beginning, but if we do a little compromise and we and uh, we work together and do some relationship building. Uh, I think we're going to be in a better spot. So, yeah, I would think, you know, positivity, focus and compromise. Ah, those are those are great ones. And uh, and they perlay right into the work that you're doing and the opportunity to have the impact you want because of being able to communicate among parties and stay focused and stay positive every single day. And Joe, question number three, who are the thought leaders that you follow? Now, sometimes people answer this with maybe an author or um, an an icon, a public figure. Sometimes it's someone within their own family or a mentor. Who is it for you? Yeah. So, you know, I really wanted to listen. So as we entered this enteric methane mitigation sort of focal point, I really wanted to take a step back. We were building the infrastructure. It was going to take a year or two to really get to that point. So I just wanted to step back and listen to people. So I actually did an exercise on behalf of the Global Methane Hub, talked to about 20, actually getting close to 30 different PIs across the world, um, to be able to understand their perspective and, and use that as a way to grow personally, to, to listen and hear and, and, and learn from them and learn from that expertise. Um, so there's that part. And I want to, and I'm, I'm certainly being broad here in terms of the groups of people, but the, the other group would be my students. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of enthusiasm. And I lead a lab, and the lab now has 10 different countries represented in the lab, which is phenomenal. I never thought of that, would, that would ever happen. And um, it's really nice to be able to give, let them have the freedom to challenge me, um, to come up with ideas. And there, I could probably list a dozen times where a student had an idea just through their interaction. And I would think about it, I would think about it, and they would be persistent and persistent and persistent. And finally, it would sink in. I was like, yeah, that is a really good idea. Let's do it. 
and then we would just chase down the funding and in a matter of time we were actually doing the study so we have to look at this as a two-way interaction and sometimes we say oh we're in this position and we're so focused on our own personal agenda but the people around us also have very valuable agendas and very variable uh, valuable ideas and i really try to list for people that are younger than me older than me and bring it all together we're at we're we're, we're making progress there you go. And as you said, now you're in your 40s. So you're in that perfect that perfect point to look at the 20-year-olds you work with in the lab and look at the 60-year-olds that are starting to exit the field. And, and you're in that perfect spot, Joe, right now to, to be able to listen, lean in, learn, and, uh, and then take those actions. And uh, question number four, what words do you live by? Favorite quote, phrase, is there something that you have on, a, on your wall or your desk? Words you live by. I mean, I, I don't, I would just say be, to be positive, be positive. It's something that it is so important now that I take, teach my kids this almost every day. I say that, you know, be positive. You know, you're not, it's okay to fail. It's, um, it's okay to, you know, learn from your mistakes. It's, it's so, and I think this is something that as I, again, I've gotten older. Um, I think my, the, my sort of to be, over time, I've become a more, hopefully I've become a more humble person. And the reality is, is that I think initially when I was a lot younger, I, f- I felt compelled to have, think I had all the right answers. Um, I, I really, now more so than ever, really try to embody the fact that even at my current position, when I get up, all these new advisees that come and grad students and they think I got all the right answers, one of the first words I told, tell them when I meet them, I do not have all the right answers. <laughs> That's like the first word that I tell them. I said, just so you know, you're going to have to challenge me. You're going to have to have discussions, you know, because we're, 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 we try to push the field of science as hard as we possibly can right to the edge. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an area of unknown biology, right? And so um, I have to listen. We have to listen to other people. We have to be willing to take risk and to make mistakes. Um, yeah. So be positive. You know, take some take some risks in life, you know, we'll get there. Yeah. And uh, great guidance for those young people that you work with. Do you think there's a do you think there's a different level of pressure on the students that you work with right now or a level of pressure they put on themselves to maybe have all the answers or, you know, maybe it's a perfectionist, you know, idea that they have in their head. What do you what do you see and shift in the students that you work with um, in the last I few do. years? I do. I mean, I you know, I, I think I definitely, it's, it's a high pressure environment. There's no question about that. Right. And it's a competitive environment and we try our best to really, you know, encourage, you know, people, encourage our students to speak up. Even when you think you don't have the right answer, just speak up. And if I were to look back at my younger self, I would say to, to say to myself, Hey, listen, just talk more, just be, be, be more willing to just say the wrong thing. And nobody, nobody's out there judging you, right? And so I, sometimes I feel like my students have that fear and I really constantly repeat them. It's okay to talk. It's okay to say things that you think that are just, maybe you think you should have known that because you should have paid attention in that class. So now you're going to be quiet. That's the time you speak up uh, because, you know, it, it time, you're only on this planet for so short of time and it's not going to, we want you, we want our students to succeed. We want to be able to have good engagement and we want to learn from each other. So, yeah, that's been the philosophy, I guess, is that students need to um, be okay with speaking up and 
being wrong sometimes. It's okay. Yeah. And lucky students that get to work with you that have you as a mentor, not just for the science, but also for those lessons in life that will carry them forward. And uh, last question that I have for you from my up level five, the last one I always ask is what is your next up level? What is the area of your life personally, professionally that you're taking to the next level right now? Next level. Oh, well, (laughs) I will say that in my work life, it's our work in India. It's um, Mm. an announcement in the near future about some of the efforts that we're doing. But one of the goals is to is to build a feed library for the country of India with, with expertise in India. It's a, it's a major challenge, a major undertaking, and um, it's it's going to be a real experience. And uh, if it's going to be put, put, put our lab in India, myself in India, perhaps my family as well for a bit of time. And so we're gonna, that's going to be a, a really unique time in my life and, and hopefully the lives of many others. Um, and in my, at home, you know, we're always trying to kick it up a notch at the McFadden household. Um, I will say, I will say that we're trying. My wife told me I was not allowed to have any ruminants on the farm unless I stopped traveling. So that's a hard no, even though I'm really pushing hard on that one. Um, but you know, we're doing things like um, we just to get some broilers. Uh, we're we're, we, uh, we're expanding that, and um, again, expand the maple operation, get into more retail outlets. Um, work on different products and things like that. You know, I love the, that part of the, of, of my home life and being able to work with my kids and my wife all in the same business. That's a really special experience. So. That certainly is. Yeah. Well, congratulations and best wishes in both of those, uh, in both of those areas, the work that is uh, drawing you to India and also the work that you're doing right there at home. Uh, what is it about India? What attracts you to that that region? A couple years ago, yeah, a couple of years ago, the Environmental Defense Fund came to to Cornell and started talking about India, and I just got me thinking. And I went back and I was studying it, and it's got three hundred million cattle and buffalo managed by seventy five million smallholder farmers. Okay, there's about nine million dairy cows in the United States, and roughly forty thousand farmers, and that difference is remarkable. Right, and so then I had a chance to visit. And it's just such a unique environment. They have so many challenges. It's now the most populous country in the world. Um, and so they, they produce about 22% of the world's dairy. Um, and, you know, they, they have a lot of great ideas. Uh, I've seen things like biogas fermenters on smallholder farms, soil production to help farmers, you know, make income. And um, we have to continue to help to find ways to support them. And um, I think we have some of the tools to do that. So... At the same time, help us maybe curb some of the methane and and um, and, uh, and help promote a, a better planet. So we'll see. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Berg and Schmidt, your partner for improving animal performance. DSM Furminish, mycotoxins can threaten feed and cattle performance. DSM Furminish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Fibro Animal Health Corporation, healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. All right. Well, Joe, thank you for tackling the up level five. And as we close out our time together here, I have a question for you that I have heard you ask another guest in the past when you have those conversations about lactose intolerance. Uh, I can tell you're pretty passionate about eating ice cream. Yes, from- 
<laughs> from other episodes. So what is your favorite ice cream flavor, Joe? Oh, my favorite ice cream, um, chocolate peanut butter cup. Uh, I would say uh, mint, mint ice cream, mint chocolate chip. Um, black raspberry. See, I'm, I have too many to list already. Okay, that's my problem. Uh, I, what I've been trying to do, and if, you, if, if the, the listeners of this podcast can do one thing, they could pro- they could probably contact the food science department at Cornell University and let Joe McFadden go create an ice cream flavor. Right? We'll create an ice cream flavor that, that epitomizes. Uh, dairy production and all of our sustainability efforts. Okay. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can we do that? All right. That would be really good. I've been trying to push hard to, to make this happen and with very little progress. So I need the, the listeners to do this. All right. So the listeners that are up for the challenge of the McFadden flavored ice cream, and there's got to be maple syrup in it, right? Oh, well, well, probably, probably. <laughs> So this is so this is the next set. This is really your next up level is your ice cream flavor that encompasses everything, Joe. Yes. From the enteric methane <laughs> to the maple syrup and everything in between. And a little sprinkle of India on the yeah, top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that, may, that may be too extreme, but yeah, I really I can't I can't live to be at this university uh, and not be able to have this opportunity. So hopefully it'll come back, come true one day. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, Joe, thank you for being the guest today on the Dairy Podcast Show. And again, I'm Peggy Coffin from the Up Level Dairy Podcast. And on the Up Level Dairy Podcast, every week I have conversations with dairy farm owners, managers, and trusted advisors in the industry on topics related to business, management, and leadership. And you can find the Up Level Dairy Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube as well. All right. Thanks for letting me jump in to the Dairy Podcast Show. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.